Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Voxman Music Building uh, here on the campus of the University of Iowa, and we're very grateful to have you joining us, either here in the room or watching or listening to this program. Our program tonight is all about internationalization and higher education. It's about the opportunities our students, faculty, and staff have to engage both locally and globally with people from other cultures and traditions, embracing international research collaborations, taking advantage of study abroad and far-flung internships, and just as importantly, engaging on campus with the international students, faculty, and staff that help make this a global institution. We'll also be asking, from an institutional and strategic point of view, what it means to tackle the challenges of globalization in a top-tier public research university, and what does a globally-oriented institution offer to our state and to the nation. But first, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Howard Kerr, the recipient of the 2016 International Impact Award from the University of Iowa. Howard is joined on stage by the faculty member who nominated him for the award, Brian Lai. Um, Howard, this isn't the first honor you've received from the university. I know that you're a class fellow, a College of Liberal Arts and Sciences fellow. You're on the Dean's Advisory Board, and you've long had a relationship, starting way back uh, before uh, in the 1950s when you began your work here at the University of Iowa and graduated in 60. So you have a long, long relationship, relationship with our uh, institution. And um, to give people who uh, don't know much about you, just a little bit of a rundown of some of your professional achievements. I'd like to just mention that uh, you began with your BA here at Iowa in 1960. Um, you got a master's and a master's of law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. You were commander in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War, military aide to Vice Presidents Spiro Agnew and Gerald Ford, and then also President Ford. You worked with the Council on Foreign Relations, and after retiring from the Navy, you were president of two international corporations, have served on several boards, and served three terms as mayor of Lake Forest, Illinois. So, wow, I mean, that's, that's a pretty compelling rundown there. Um, would you take us back to your early years here at, uh, before you came to Iowa? How did you come to this university, and what do you think you got out of it? Well, when I graduated from high school in Des Moines, I went to work in a factory. That's what everybody did in the neighborhood. And one day, I did not go to work. I went to the Highway 6, and I hitchhiked to Iowa City, and I registered at the university for classes. I had no idea what, uh, what, what I was uh, really doing. I got a job in the hospital washing pots and pans, and, uh, and I thought I, you know, I was, it was changing my life. And I got here, and I had no idea uh, what, but Iowa became my window to the world, if you will. And I'm not talking about a physical world so much, but a world of academics, a world of history, a world of science, uh, a world of religion is taught here. And I, uh, I look back, and the liberal arts education that I received at this university, uh, I think, put me in a wonderful position when opportunities came to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. I, I owe this university so much, and I'm trying to pay a little back. 
Oh. <laughs> well, you know, we had a conversation before um, as we were planning this program and decided there were so many things from Howard's um, professional life to discuss, we were going to have to narrow it down. And we chose three basic uh, um, areas to concentrate on. And one of them was your work with the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, tell us how you ended up working with them and, and what that was all about. Well, um... I was finishing a three-year tour in command of one of the Navy's newest ships, and I found out I'd been nominated to go to the Council on Foreign Relations. It was quite a contrast, uh, and uh, I was aware of the Council on Foreign Relations, and I think Barry Butler did a nice job of describing uh, in his introduction of me. But uh, we kind of looked at it, uh, those of us who were there every day, you know, this was the this was the elite watering hole on the East Coast, you know, for, for academics and business people, et cetera, who were interested in America's uh, foreign policy, mm -hmm. stretching from Boston to, to Washington. And there was hardly a day went by that there wasn't an opportunity to sit down with someone who was a recognized expert in, in their field. Plus, there were visitors all the time for lunches, for dinners. Um, I still remember the evening that my wife and I were, uh, were having dinner there, and I turned around and I stepped on this woman's foot, and I apologized. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I realized that it was Barbara Tuchman. Oh, and I had right. read so much of her work, so I got into this conversation with her, and it, uh, it, it was just kind of a, a look back, and it was opportunities like this. But it was a rich environment very stimulating environment, uh, and uh, uh, I uh, had to select something to focus on that mm -hmm. year, and I selected uh, strategic arms limitation talks that were uh, underway. Uh, President Nixon had signed the first uh, limitations uh, with uh, the Soviet Union, uh, and but there were a lot of technological changes that had made that agreement uh, not quite uh, uh, as equitable as we wanted it. And so uh, SALT II, they called it. And, mm -hmm. and I spent the, the year uh, trying to understand and focus on, um, on uh, the, the need for strategic armed limitation mm -hmm. talks, the need to be engaged with, with the Soviet Union, the need to be a partner with people who had the capacity to blow up this world. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, uh, I, I left there uh, 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 more convinced than I had when I arrived yeah, yeah. how important, how important it is to keep lines of communications mm -hmm. open and to have people of good character and good faith mm -hmm. sitting at the table. Mm -hmm. That was always one of the problems that we sometimes <laughs> had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well... Let's move from that to, to another sort of very critical period in American history generally, but also in your own life when you were serving in the White House yes. uh, during the period when President Nixon uh, resigned and uh, President Ford transitioned into that office. Uh, help, help tell well, us I what you saw. I can't believe it on globalization. So, <laughs> uh, so let me say that I'm going to be... Uh, I, um, uh, in 19... After the... The, the election of 72, uh, President Nixon and Vice President Agnew were re-elected by the largest electoral plurality in the history of uh, the United States. 
their opponent, uh, George McGovern of South Dakota, uh, won only the state of Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. Within 17 months of that election, of that magnitude, they had both resigned their office. Yeah. Something that had never happened in the history of the United States. When I went to the White House in um, early 1973 uh, to work for the Vice President, um, I, 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 no way anybody could have imagined. Now, the, Watergate was already uh, uh, on the, uh, the minds of people, and there were a lot of uh, rumors floating around Washington, as there always are. Um, but uh, uh, those of us on the, the vice president's staff, we had no idea that he was also under investigation. That had been kept uh, a very secret. Uh, so uh, uh, Mr. Agnew was, uh, uh, had engaged in what we call a pay-for-play uh, gambit when he was an elected official in uh, Maryland. And he brought that into the White House. Uh, not, not. He, he ended up taking payments in the White House when he was Vice President of the United States. Uh, so um, he um, eventually uh, resigned. And really, there were a lot of people in Washington that uh, felt that uh, uh, this was all a, a put up because of a lot of people felt that President Nixon was not going to survive Watergate, and they did not want. Uh, uh, Spiro Agnew to be the President of the United States. Mm. Well, I, I, I think that's just another rumor in Washington because mm -hmm. the fact is is that he went before the judge, pleaded the nolo contendere, and... Uh, and, and, and uh, the choice for Vice President under the 25th Amendment, which had never been uh, implemented, was uh, Gerald Ford of the uh, 10th District of, uh, of uh, Michigan. Uh, that he was not the first choice of President Nixon, but uh, President Nixon had been advised by senior people in the in the Congress that Gerald Ford was the only candidate that they would um, that, that that could be approved, right. and that really was due to the reputation of the man for his honesty, his character, etc. Uh, he came and uh, uh, I, I began to brief him on on the intelligence daily intelligence briefs. Uh, when he was on the Hill, uh, and uh, one day he leaned over to me and he said, who do you work for? And I said, well, Mr. Ford, I said, that's a good question. I said, uh, I said I'm, I'm assigned to the vice president's office, but I'm the only one standing. They, everybody else had been fired by the chief of staff. And so uh, he picked up the phone and called General Haig, and anyway, he looked at me and he said, now, you're now working for me. There's no confusion. And I said, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. So I... I, I worked with, with him. Uh, I traveled extensively with him. Uh, vice, he, he was the first vice president of the United States that had never been elected by the people. So he was very sensitive to that issue. And so he wanted to, to travel and introduce himself to the American public. And uh, I think the other reason is, is that he wanted to get out of Washington as much as he could because things were really beginning to... Uh, and there were rumors floating around of a deal between him and President Nixon. And so, you know, and the press, uh, he, he couldn't even have a meeting with some substantive, uh, on some substantive issue with some substantive person 
because it, it triggered all kinds of rumors and questions, et cetera. So we spent most of the year just flying around the United States meeting, meeting people. And uh, uh, then uh, I came to work on the uh, 8th of, the 8th of, uh, of July, 1974. And uh, when I got to the office at 6 o'clock, we were told that the president would speak to the nation that night at 8 o'clock and that he was resigning his office. Well, we all looked at each other. There were about 10 of us. And when the vice president of the United States resigned, or the president of the United States resigned, since it had never happened, there wasn't any textbook to go to for here's what you do if the president of the United States resigns. So we were. We knew that we had to take control of the swearing-in of the, of, of the new president. That was really the, the first order of business. And we, um, uh, we did that. And um, let me just fast forward here, because I know we're time limited. Uh, the, I wanted to talk about a little bit the, the most significant issue that the president faced. And that was Richard Nixon. What to do with Richard Nixon. He had flown out to California. He had taken 27 members of his staff with him. Uh, we were getting calls daily from the uh, Democratic leadership telling us that uh, uh, they were running up bills and, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the, the Transition Act that, that covers outgoing presidents is silent about presidents who <laughs> resign. So, so we were... Uh, Anyway, it, it, it finally got itself resolved. Uh, but uh, President Ford understood that uh, uh, if the former president was indicted uh, and, and tried, that his, his presidency would be subsumed uh, you know, to, to, to this issue. All the oxygen in Washington would be taken up just dealing with Richard Nixon. So he uh, uh, decided that uh, he would pardon Richard Nixon. It's clear. And uh, uh, that was one of the closest hold uh, secrets that I uh, can recall in the, uh, all the time I was in the White House. Uh, I found out on Friday evening that, that president was going to speak to the nation at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on Sunday. And they'd put the time back because they found out that Time and Newsweek magazines, which were very important in those days, went to press at uh, 8 o'clock and they figured they'd have so many issues already <laughs> that they wouldn't stop and reprint. The, <laughs> and so that, that's what triggered the, the time. And I was standing outside the, um, the Oval Office when he announced to the nation that uh, he was pardoning uh, President Richard Nixon. And on my right was a, was a friend uh, who was, uh, covered the White House uh, for uh, 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 Newsweek magazine. And on my right hand was General Haig. And uh, the president announced that what he was doing it was a very short presentation, very short speech. And Tom DeFrank, I remember, looked at this uh, and he said, um, President Ford has just lost the 76 election. 
General Haig leaned over and said, he just made his first presidential level decision. Yeah. In other yeah. words, only the tough decisions come to the desk of the president. Mm -hmm. uh, he lost 40 some points of popularity <clears throat> through that action. And people never really did forgive him for, for what happened. Uh, but he did the right thing and 25 years after that, Senator Ted Kennedy, <clears throat> who was one of his most vocal opponents, and trashed him bitterly. We've, we've come accustomed to a lot of trashing these days, but I gotta tell you, Watergate outdoes anything that I have. <laughs> and Ted Kennedy gave former President Ford the John F. Kennedy Award for Profiles and Courage for the pardoning of Richard Nixon. And that was the, uh, uh, the uh, I thought it was fitting. Yeah. But just very quickly, you know, Gerald Ford never wanted to be president of the United States. He told everybody that, and he even told us when he was on the vice president's staff. He was a congressman from, 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 Wisconsin, from Michigan. What he wanted to be was Speaker of the House. He never achieved that. And then he got caught up like Truman in the currents of history. And he ended up being the 38th president of the United States. Before he was sworn in, the rumors that were floating around Washington and the discussion was that the presidency will never be the same again. That it had lost so much credibility under Richard Nixon that uh, uh, it'll take decades to recover that, that position that, that is held by the people of this country, et cetera. Because of the character of, of Gerald Ford, within a few days, all of that had gone away. This man had reestablished, because of his character, not because of his vision, character. The people knew and they trusted him and they believed in him. And when the historians write about Ford, they're not going to write about all the great things and movements that he did, but he came forward at a time when the country really needed a Gerald Ford. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what I would leave anybody with today, is that it was, it was character that was needed, and Gerald Ford had it. Well, Brian, when you bring Howard into your political science classes and he tells some of these stories to your students, none of whom I imagine, most of whom were not born oh, when yeah. President Nixon was, was president, um, this is all historic. This is a, a piece of history that they read about somewhere in a book somewhere. But then you have Howard, who was watching all of this happen on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, what, do, what do they think? Oh, what do I they think, say? I mean, Howard provides a lot of... Uh, it's good, you know, first-hand experience about a lot of things we talk about in class. So we talk about sort of the Cold War, we talk about confrontations with the Soviet Union, and Howard talks about his actual, an actual confrontation he's had with Soviet naval vessels uh, in the ocean. Or we talk about Vietnam, Howard talks about exactly, you know, his discussions with Admiral Zumwalt and General Abrams about what the U.S. should, you know, what the president wants the U.S. to do in Vietnam. So he provides a lot of sort of first-hand context that we don't, you know, I 
don't really spend too much time on, which I also I don't have. So yeah. it's, I think it's great for the students to especially hear that from one of our alumni. Yeah. Yeah, well, when we were talking at an earlier date, uh, you spoke very warmly about what it means to you at this point in your life to be able to to come back and talk to students who were sitting in the same chairs you were sitting in um, many years ago when you were a student here at the University of Iowa. Well, too many years. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, I'm 81 today, and uh, so that was a few years ago. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but uh, I always remember a young student came up to me after one of the classes, and she said, um, Howard, she said, or not Howard, but she said, uh, uh, you've done so many things. You've experienced so much. She said, uh, how, 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 how did this all happen? And she said, you've been very lucky. And that struck me, and I said, let me tell you, I, I worked for uh, one of the finest senior officers in the post-World War II period, and one afternoon, he said, Howard, I'm going to tell you what luck is. Luck is preparation, waiting for opportunity. And so I try to tell the students that this is their opportunity to prepare. This is what they should be doing at this school. This is what they should be taking all these courses and learning as much as they can to prepare themselves for the moment where they have to make a decision because there's an opportunity that has presented itself. And so I think that's what a lot of this education is about, preparing people to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves to them. I think that's what happened in my case and that's why I look back at this university and my experience here was so positive in that regard. I didn't have any idea. When I left the school, I had no more idea than any of the other students, you know, what we were going to do. It was a different world, of course, uh, but um, the, um, you know, opportunities presented itself and you take, you, you move in a direction and, and then you have to have the skill set to be able to execute those things. But still, uh, so many um, uh, students are uh, uh, very worried about where they're headed, and I try to tell them just study, pay attention, interact with people, go to as many things as you can go to, experience as much as you can experience, and you never know when something that you have picked up in a, in a, in a, at a party or in a, in, a, in a lecture, particularly from this gentleman, <laughs> That, that you're going to use. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, my, yeah. that's my message to the students, and they yeah. seem to react, uh, yeah. react to that. Yeah. At least they close their, uh, their iPads and their... <laughs> 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 when, when I start talking to them. Yeah. 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 Well, I do wish we had more time to talk about your very interesting about, life. I want to uh, talk about business? globalization for just a okay, second. Ahead, yeah. To conclude, we just have a couple of minutes left, but please share your thoughts about... Well, uh, when I left the, uh, uh, my career in the Navy, I went into the private sector, and uh, I ended up uh, heading up uh, a reasonable-sized corporation that had... Uh, uh, and, and the... Uh, we came to a conclusion that, that there were a lot of things that were beginning, we were beginning to see that we did not understand. 
For example, uh, uh, this person was providing us with parts, but what we didn't know was that they had subcontracted to somebody overseas, you know, to do it. And, and so we, we were losing control. And um, uh, also the cost structure that we had uh, built around the company was putting tremendous pressure on us. Uh, you know, America had experienced a great growth from the uh, uh, days of building the armaments for World War II, and then we, we, we were the only uh, uh, people that could manufacture in the late 40s and 50s before the Marshall Plan took effect in Europe and the Japanese began to uh, recover from, from World War II. So we had these closed markets, and uh, uh, it, it, it did not result in, in uh, uh, the, the type of, uh, of uh, discipline, mm -hmm. if you will, that we needed to bring to businesses on a day. Well, I, I, I hadn't been working in this sector, and all of a sudden here I am, uh, brand new, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm presented with a situation and, and we sat down and talked and talked and talked, and I never heard the word globalization or internationalization ever used, but that's exactly what was happening, and we simply didn't understand it. And so um, I've become a uh, believer, you know, in, in the fact that there are currents that we don't understand, but we need to study, we need to uh, uh, identify uh, what what, what are the things that, say, you have to do at a major university today? And, uh, uh, and we had to make tough decisions, and those tough decisions uh, resulted uh, in an awful lot of uh, anguish and uh, agony for people that, uh, you know, who had had a wonderful life without ever having to invest anything intellectually in getting that particular job. You know, you, you, could, you could go in and, and, you know, when I went to work in the factory, I think it was five minutes of instruction, and that was all I needed, you know, to be able to do this job. And the people on either side of me were raising families with, you know, with the same investment. Well, that's all gone today. And, uh, and a lot of the people, uh, uh, you know, the, we've learned that things like NAFTA and another trade agreements are generally very, very healthy for the country as a whole, but there are winners and losers. And the winners uh, uh, love it, and the losers, I think a lot of those losers came out to vote the other day. Yeah. And, uh, but, but that's, and I don't mean to make light of it, those are the real things that happen and are happening in our world today. We, we are, uh, you don't want to be too many cliches, but we are really interactive mm -hmm. and we're multicultural and we have to understand that and, and, and figure out how to deal with that mm -hmm. because it's here to stay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I guess that's about as, as real and true as anything <laughs> gets, and I think that we'll have to leave it at that for the moment, but I want to thank you, Brian, and particularly you, Howard Kerr, uh, the 2016 International Impact Award winner from the University of Iowa, and um, uh, all of you who've been here to enjoy this conversation today, I'm, I'm sure will not forget it. This is a, this is a wonderful close-up look at, at 
really important American history, and uh, we appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. Um, and I hope you can all stay with us for part two of this series when we'll be discussing how globalization is affecting higher education and what internationalization means here at the University of Iowa. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, uh, that's it for this segment of World Canvas. Thanks for being here. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're broadcasting from the Voxman Music Building in downtown Iowa City. This is the beautiful new recital hall. Uh, this is part two of our three-part series called Higher Education in the Age of Internationalization. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce three very special guests who will help us understand the concept of internationalization in higher education and what it means to the University of Iowa. Ellen Hazelcorn, just to my right, is policy advisor to the Higher Education Authority of Ireland and a keen observer of international education trends. Uh, yesterday, Ms. Hazelcorn gave a keynote address in the University of Iowa's Commitment to Internationalization lecture series on the topic Internationalization and the Geopolitics of Higher Education. Pleasure to have you here with us Thank today. You. you bet. And Barbara McFadden Allen is just next to Ellen. Uh, she's executive director of the Big Ten Academic Alliance, a consortium of 14 U.S. research universities. Uh, she plays a major role in international higher education as a member of the steering committee of the Global Midwest Initiative of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and is a leading voice for the Global University Summit, which is a gathering of worldwide leaders held annually in conjunction with G8. Summit. So, an honor to have you here, Barbara. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Our third guest is well known to many people on campus. He is uh, Downing Thomas, the Associate Provost and Dean of International Programs, who serves as the University of Iowa's Chief International Officer. So, great to have you here, Downing. So, Ellen, uh, I will start with you, if okay. you don't mind. Uh, your address yesterday on campus focused on internationalization and the geopolitics of higher education. Um, Let's just start with the definition of internationalization. What does that really mean? Okay. Um, I think internationalization refers increasingly to issues around people and mobility and interculturalization, intercultural exchange, mobility. And I expect a good way to maybe compare that is to look at what we refer to as globalization, as Howard sure. referred to, which is essentially the increasing interconnectedness of people, business, and trade um, around the globe in, a, in an interconnected way in which um, cross borders in a way in which the borders themselves begin to disappear mm -hmm. and become less important. Mm -hmm. And it is that interconnectedness between us all as the way in which we both move around the world and in in a way in which it seems to be, uh, which we might never have thought about before. We move from one place, destination to the next. We buy goods and services from around the world, part in everything in which we buy. So it is increasingly that interconnectedness of where we are that um, has been an ongoing force. We look at it now as a big force since the 1980s, 1990s, but arguably 
this has been part of a process for several centuries, mm -hmm. many centuries. Yeah. Well, as we look at globalization now, you know, you mentioned that um, goods are, are traded one place to another. Howard mentioned in the earlier segment that Indeed. they discovered that um, their corporation was buying goods. They thought from one organization, but it turned out they had subcontracted. So very often, we can't even trace where things are coming from mm -hmm. without a whole lot of work. So, so we face that every day in our lives. Within higher education, what are some of the trends you see that, that have occurred since we became more and more uh, a global marketplace for education? Okay, so some of the obvious things have to do with the mobility of students, um, the mobility of faculty, the interconnectedness of research. Research is increasingly collaborative. Mm -hmm. Understanding what's happening in the world and, and the forces upon us are not just what you might call things that we do ourselves, but are external forces or external drivers. And those drivers are no longer just within our local region or even our local state, but are often international. So I think a good way of looking at it is to say that, let's say, certain diseases. We might have thought Ebola or Zika was something that happened somewhere else or the migration crisis that we now experience in, in Europe, uh, that they were someone else's issue. But we soon learn that they are part of our own world, and they are impacting on us in a very immediate way. Or issues like climate change, which we might have thought you know, was something else, is now affecting us very locally. So these kinds of issues where borders become less and less um, important because all these issues interact with each other. Mm -hmm. That affects us in higher education quite considerably. Mm -hmm. Well, you live in Ireland, as we've mentioned, and you, mm -hmm. you do a lot of work around the world, and mm -hmm. I imagine perhaps mostly in uh, Western Europe. Would that be accurate? You're closest mostly, to that? Mostly in Europe, but um, also occasionally in, uh, in the Middle East, mm -hmm. um, occasionally in Asia, mm -hmm. and so on, yeah. Is there, is there one thing, or would there be two things that you could say appear to be quite new to you in the way um, uh, leadership within major universities or brand new institutions that are being created, uh, some of the things that they are um, thinking of now that would have been very unusual to encounter 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah, okay, well, I think that, you know, the issue of um, higher education leadership is really a complex and difficult job. Mm -hmm. People often think that it's a kind of simple job. It's very, I think it's very difficult. Um, some of the issues are higher education institutions used to be very local. They're now operating in an increasingly global world. It's the motto here for, for Iowa, mm -hmm. connecting Iowa to the world and the world to Iowa. Um, that calls for a whole different understanding of what the university is doing, who its publics are, and the role it, it plays in the yeah. world. So strategic leadership, strategic capacity, understanding those trends, mm -hmm. understanding what's happening is important, mm -hmm. and a huge change for higher education institutions. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, both the students and the academics, the faculty, operate in that global world. Mm -hmm. Every student, whether they physically move or not, will operate in a global economy. Mm -hmm. They need to understand that. Mm -hmm. They need to understand whether they're working in a small town or they're working in a large town. They are part and parcel of a global economy mm -hmm. because, as you say, the products or the services they're making mm -hmm. 
or selling, either online or not, are part and parcel of this. Yes. And yes. one of the things globalization has done is it has enabled people um, developing small craft or small businesses to sell internationally mm -hmm. in a way that they might never, would yeah. never have been yeah. able to do before. Sure. So those are things that our students really need to understand. Mm -hmm. Well, so Barbara, let's uh, move down the line and talk to you because I think uh, what Ellen just said leads very nicely into um, what you can share uh, working with major institutions here in the United States, working with the Big Ten Alliance. What are uh, we facing or um, what are we challenged by? So just following beautifully on what Ellen said, I guess maybe drawing out the numbers in our institutions a little more to give you a, a little picture of for example, the research and development enterprise. So the Big Ten universities engage in about $10 billion in funded research every year. It's more than the University of California system and the Ivy League combined. And the effects of that research go out in, in sort of ripples. So they start here in this Iowa City, where as soon as you get a grant from the government or whoever uh, to launch a project, you're hiring people and renting space and purchasing equipment. And so there's this immediate economic impact just from the flow of the funds. But from this, students are educated, they go out, they get jobs both in Iowa and then they they'll go out to the rest of the U.S. and then ultimately out into the world where their discoveries are transplanted state to state, country to country. And so, as Ellen said, at, at some point we become so interconnected, but it starts you know, right here, right here in, in Iowa City. Across our institutions, we educate about 500,000 students. Uh, almost 100,000 of them come from countries all over the world, about 100 different countries, but half of them come from China. A lot of our collaborative research from that $10 billion investment is done in collaboration with folks from Canada and China. Those are our greatest um, partners. Um, so what this means for the institution in terms of policies and the support of faculty, of students, of the research um, is intertwined with governmental policies and public policy around how people can move uh, between countries, between states, and how ideas are transplanted um, from project to project across, the, uh, across those particular borders. And as Ellen said, the, the ideas know no borders, and they can be transmitted very, very quickly. But then there are these political... Um, gates that are put in, in place in many ways and that restricts or inhibits some of these uh, trans, the transplant of those ideas. So that's on the R&D side. Um, we have seen a pretty rapid increase in the number of international students recruited to our undergraduate programs, almost 30,000 additional students just in the last five years, and again, many of them from China. So that's changing the way our undergraduate population sort of looks and how we serve those students. Um, and I think that's something that Downing and his colleagues struggle with uh, mm -hmm. in the Big Ten. Also, another change we've seen, there was a little bit of, uh, maybe I'd call it adventuring a few years ago when some campuses thought they would launch an international campus, put up yes. a physical plant on another, another country, and that, that, that seems to have slowed or, or come to it pretty much a screeching halt, really. Mm -hmm. So our institutions... Um, <laughs> have now invested in temporary quarters or what you might call gateways where a, a number of, of activities can be undertaken rather than putting up a brick and mortar uh, mm -hmm. uh, replica of your university in some, mm -hmm. other, some other country. And we're increasing the number of students studying abroad. Uh, 
that we're sending from our campuses abroad. But I think the, the biggest impact certainly is in the research and development and any, any change uh, in the geopolitical environment internationally has an effect, uh, positive or negative, on that kind of research going on in the ways we um, conduct that. Mm -hmm. so. did, did you want to add another Well, comment? I was just mm -hmm. going to say on the R&D, I mean, one of the probably, one of the most successful international collaboratives is the Genome Project, oh, which yes. could never sure. have happened without the collaboration across Europe and the United States, and I think into Asia as well. It's the capacity, because it's not just the different diversity of views, but it's the capacity of different mm -hmm. labs working together. And we see that, certainly in a European context, we talk increasingly about global societal challenges. The UN has its, has its millennial goals, and they are the big challenges that we all face. And so they're not, you know, urbanization, that's a big issue, issues of climate, issues of healthy aging, issues of disease, all these. There are major issues that are not possible to solve by individuals. They require a very collective, and because the experience is so vast and shared. So I think they're all examples that feed onto the research side. And I think people struggle with that. They right? do. So, so you, you recognize that at a high level, again, that these connections have to take place, but then there's a pull to, to do it locally, yeah, and yeah. always, and I think sure. we're seeing that sure. in yeah. this country. But the Large Hadron Collider is another excellent yeah, absolutely. example. 90% of the world's particle physicists study at, at the Large That's Hadron certain. Collider every every year. So w we need these kinds of very large-scale um, installations. Mm. And again, geopolitical barriers make those more yeah. and more difficult. Mm -hmm. so. Well, Downing, so let's bring this back to the University of Iowa then. I know that these last couple of years, particularly, you have, throughout your career, um, been interested in internationalization, and uh, obviously with international programs, that, that office manages the incoming students from international locations, and also uh, domestic and international students who take study abroad, um, many faculty research projects that are international. But um, you have recently, in the last couple of years, with colleagues across campus, been working on a sort of a strategic vision and plan for internationalization here at, at Iowa. Could you share that process and, and what some of the goals are. Sure. Um, well, Ellen has uh, aptly described uh, globalization as kind of the increasing movement of uh, people, ideas, goods, services, diseases across borders. Uh, we talk about comprehensive internationalization in the university as the academic engagement with all of those things that are happening. And so it's a very different world. I mean, the Howard Kerr in the earlier segment uh, listening to him talk, we live in a very, very different world. There's some continuities, but there are many, many uh, disconnects. Um, you know, if you look back 30 years ago, international activities in a university, and I'm, this is a bit of a caricature, but were a junior year study abroad in, yeah. in France or in Italy, and it was the art students and the, and the humanities people, and some social sciences and the odd anthropologists me, uh, going to, to study tribes in, uh, in South America. Uh, but today, um, as you've described it, there is an increasing imperative for all the students who come here to have some ability 
to uh, cross borders with confidence, to interact with people who are different from, from themselves, um, to work in teams that are mobile, that are in, in different sites around the world, um, and to ab the ability to address change and to, to, uh, uh, to transform oneself through that process. So that's what we're really trying to get at through, what, uh, through the internationalization strategic uh, vision and plan. And we're engaging with all of the campus. I mean, it's not about this office. It's about uh, all of the campus. And so now um, engineers uh, absolutely need to be able to, to work across borders. We're also engaging the state. Uh, and so trying to find ways in which we can lever leverage the, the expertise that we have um, and the student uh, power, if you will, uh, for example, to work with Des Moines and with the Economic Development Authority, connecting with small and medium-sized businesses that want to go global but don't have the 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 capacity uh, or the know-how. But but we can learn. We learn from them, and hopefully we can add something uh, of our own uh, to help Iowa uh, engage with the the globe in a positive way. Asking any of you, um, particularly those of you who live currently in the States, do you feel that generally the population in the United States, the, the adult population, really, um, uh, we've just gone through an election and obviously there's a big split in the country on many issues, but do you feel that people accept and understand the fact that we live in a globalized space now and that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to return to a time when we were not as engaged internationally as we are now? Well, I think the kinds of results um, in this country are similar to the results you see happening in Europe and elsewhere. Um, the, there is a, what I call a gap, clearly, between some of the um, activities that happen around universities and the areas around them. The universities are about interculturalism, multiculturalism, lots of ideas, open borders, and so on. And some of these things are obviously quite difficult if you're not part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I expect one of the messages I've been, been putting out over the last day was really about bringing internationalization back home. Because at the end of the day, the numbers of students or faculty who will travel are limited. They will be limited for lots of reasons. Um, and it is about making, um, bringing the values and importance of internationalization back home so that everyone is part and parcel of that conversation mm -hmm. and understands what it's about. Not being told what it's about, but being actively engaged in mm -hmm. what it's about. And um, I think that's important to kind of to begin for a wider understanding, because I don't think, I mean, as Howard said himself, there's no going back. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't stop progress in that sort of way. You can deal with some of the how it affects people, and you can deal with those changes. But we are moving towards a more integrated world. Get on a plane here today, you're somewhere in another country and culture within a few hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very different. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, uh, you know, yes, we do want to encourage students to study abroad, particularly 
um, students who may not have had that opportunity where it might not be a natural reflex um, coming uh, from their backgrounds. Uh, but uh, in addition to studying, we're also increasing opportunities for students to do internships abroad, to create hybrid experiences um, for, for that add to the curriculum, but also that give them a real-world dimension. But I think Ellen's point is, is exactly on, on the mark, is that we need to integrate those perspectives, those abilities in everything we do here at home. We need to think about what does it mean to be a globally competent engineer or public health uh, major or lawyer, uh, and uh, we need to reflect uh, deeply about how we do that, how we can prepare students to be successful. Mm -hmm. uh, Barb, we uh, have sort of brushed against this, I guess, but um, what within universities here in the United States that you're most familiar with, what do rankings mean, international rankings and and should institutions be Trick worried question. about where they where they are ranked or should this be held with some grain of salt right well of course everybody loves the rankings when they're number one um, <laughs> and they don't like the rankings when they're not um, and it's it's a struggle that we mm -hmm. have in our own universities I don't need to tell you that I'm sure you get very excited mm -hmm. when a college is number one and you're not so excited when mm -hmm. it's number ten um, I think to the extent that they um, encourage healthy competition and improvement in the undergraduate experience and research, mm -hmm. that's, that's all good. Mm -hmm. um, and to the extent to which they are accurate in showing uh, real value for the investment of one's time and money, I suppose mm -hmm. they're, they're good, but as you know, they're there are many, they're proliferating all the time, and many of them exist just to sell publications that specialize yeah. in, in the rankings themselves. So mm -hmm. we take them with a grain, grain mm -hmm. of salt. Uh, but again, we're, as we're in the Big Ten, we're, you know, we're all research universities, and it's yeah. important to us to, uh, that part of the portfolio mm -hmm. is based on investment in that research. So mm -hmm. of course we're gonna, we're gonna find that important. When we look at, um, we've mentioned a number of times that this is a research institution. There are lots of universities and colleges that, that uh, might be four-year liberal arts colleges, and I'm sure that they exist in uh, other countries as well as our own. Do they have a different goal? Do they have a different approach to internationalization than, uh, than you might see at a place like the University of Iowa? Do you, do you believe it's any different? Hmm. No, I think that ultimately that notion of people being global citizens and the duty of higher education, mm -hmm. whether you're in a community college or a further education or a technical or vocational or, voca or liberal arts college, doesn't matter that a student, the graduate, is going to operate in a global world. Mm -hmm. And the understanding of what that is, doesn't matter what your trade or your profession is, um, one, people need to have the skills and competences to move and to do different things throughout their lifetime. And I think mm -hmm. we need to think of students from 18 to 100. It's yeah. not the 18 to 23-year-old. Mm -hmm. It's the 18 to 100. And coming in and out. And that world changes, and people need to be able to live in that, in mm -hmm. that world wherever they started off. Mm -hmm. What do you think the biggest uh, five-year challenge is for the University of Iowa Downing? 
I think uh, the biggest five-year challenge is probably maintaining a, a steady course uh, and in, engaging uh, pre precisely what we've been talking about, um, connecting the world to, to Iowa and making that a solid, strong connection that has benefits on both sides. So. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all for being with us for this segment. Uh, Downing Thomas, Barbara McFadden, Alan, and Ellen Hazelcorn, thank you so much. And uh, we hope you can all stay with us for the third and final part of this program. When we look at our campus through the eyes of students and faculty who are working to improve campus climate and um, provide deeper levels of engagement between domestic and international students. And uh, we'll, uh, thank you for watching this segment, and uh, we hope you can join us for part three. World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, on iTunes, and on the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and I thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. We are here in the Voxman Music Building on the campus of the University of Iowa, and uh, happy to have you join us for this conversation on higher education in the age of internationalization. My guests in this segment are Benjamin Hassman, uh, lecturer in the University of Iowa Department of Rhetoric, just next to me here. Ben, thank you. And next to him is Akshaya Warrior, who is a member of the IC Leaders Undergraduate Leadership Team, and we'll learn more about that in a moment. And to the far end, we have Anish Shakira Maud Muslimin, a member of the University of Iowa International Student Advisory Board. So thank you for being here, Anish. Great. Um, I'm very excited about this segment because we're going to be talking... All evening we've been talking about internationalization in higher education, interacting with people from different cultures on campus and off, and um, you know faculty research and whatnot. But we're talking about a couple of um, uh, things that are happening now on campus with these guests that have really risen from the student body and that are helping to inform what we do here uh, moving forward. So Ben and Akshaya, I'd just like to start with you and ask you to tell us about something you started last, I think, February, the Conversation Center that you sort of oversee, but that really bubbled up from student ideas. Absolutely. So I direct the Conversation Center, which is essentially a peer-based uh, student support center at the University of Iowa. We focus on uh, creating forums for uh, engaged informal conversations between uh, competent English speakers and international students, sort of initially build as initially built as English practice, but essentially developing a deep two-way rapport between uh, international folks on campus and uh, oftentimes domestic students who have a desire to experience the broader world. Mm -hmm. We were initially, our program was began by a set of undergraduates. It took shape in an undergraduate, uh, in, in a presidential leadership class, and actually it was part of Yeah, so I met the IC leaders in the president's leadership class about two years ago when we were freshmen. And um, yes, the conversation center took off about last February, but we'd been working on it since our freshman year. I still remember going to Java House every week and just talking things through, getting things together, and figuring out where to start. And it's come a long way since then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so uh, how did you get it? 
into the Department of Rhetoric. Ben teaches in the Department of Rhetoric. How, how did you make that connection with a sort of a, a support unit on campus? Um, well, we've always talked about, um, as the IC leaders when we were starting out, we talked about the writing center and the speaking center, and we realized that conversation is just as important to rhetoric. And um, I was very close with my professor at the time, Dr. Lauren Cameron, and it was just one day that I decided to walk in and talk to her about um, the conversation center and our ideas, and it just took off, and she's been enthusiastic about it. Dr. Hassman has been incredibly supportive, and we're really thankful that the rhetoric department has been behind us and with us. Mm-hmm. So help us understand, I, I understand there's a practicum course uh, that, that sort of um, helps to support this conversation center. Absolutely. So we have two clear programs. We have the conversation pairing program, which is a one-on-one conversation. It's normally a weekly conversation that happens uh, over the course of the semester. Those conversations are staffed by undergraduates who are taking our conversation practicum course. It's a service learning style course that offers undergraduate students the opportunity to engage one-on-one in a sustained way. A lot of what we heard in the, in the sort of previous segment was about the need for students to be able to cross borders, for students to be able to be confident when they're engaging people of other backgrounds, engaging people um, who have a different uh, upbringing than them. And we do that on, uh, on basically on the ground. Uh, we provide students with the opportunity to engage those skills in a real-world way in that practicum course. And in doing that, over the course of the past year, uh, we have provided over 1,400 conversations with international students, uh, chances for them not only to build their English skills, but to build their confidence and uh, to help them find a place on campus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a tremendous vote uh, um, of confidence and a terrific turnout. For, uh, so, so I understand that um, the students in the practicum course um, are at least a first point of contact for a confident English speaker yeah. and a student who, who may not feel as confident. But are there other students on campus who volunteer to be part of this program who are not in the practicum? Oh, we certainly have some volunteers. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we do aside from the conversation pairing program is the intercultural social hour, which yeah. is an opportunity for students to engage in group conversation. So in the same way that a lot of times it's important to practice your one-on-one skills, uh, the ability to know when to jump into a conversation, the ability to sort of follow multiple threads as they're, as they're mm-hmm. going on, uh, especially in something that isn't your first language, is a very important social skill, not just in terms of your ability to engage with other people, People, but also in terms of your ability to follow a discussion in classroom, to um, talk with your professor when your professor is also engaging several other people in the class. Mm-hmm. And so the Intercultural Social Hour is a chance not just for uh, students to engage in this kind of group conversation, but also for volunteers from around campus to sort of uh, dip their feet in and mm-hmm. get a little bit of experience with exactly these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. So what kind of feedback do you get from students who have, who have had one or two of these conversations and maybe were very um, nervous about coming in to set themselves up for an initial conversation? Well, I think um, the most important bit of feedback that I have received from the students and even the international students is that um, it makes a difference to know that they're actively pushing themselves beyond their comfort zones to interact with domestic students when they may have been intimidated to go beyond that and um, beyond their own little circles of international students, especially since they're in a new country. And familiarity is comforting, but also to go beyond that, it's I think amazing to hear that kind of feedback 
and also from the domestic students. They all say it's like a life-changing experience. They never thought that somebody who has come from such a different background, from where everything that they do is different, can relate to them in an incredibly and amazingly similar way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a very personal way as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me about uh, when, when Howard Kerr was talking, he mentioned uh, coming from Des Moines to Iowa as a young man and it being his window to the world. And uh, I was a small town Iowa kid myself, and I remember choosing Iowa in part because I felt like there had to be more out there and I wanted to experience it. And it's something now as a faculty member that I oftentimes see uh, amongst, uh, amongst first-year students and, and lots of undergraduates that the reason that they chose the University of Iowa was because of this ability to engage other people. And I think especially when we think about our program, the fact that we come from undergraduate students, that the idea originated with them, and that we're staffed by undergraduate students is a key piece of what makes it an accessible yeah. program and what helps people um, overcome a lot of those initial social barriers uh, mm -hmm. to engage. Oh, I think it's so terrific, and, and uh, I suspect this is intended to be a long-running program. You're, you're hoping to make this last for a long time. We're building semester by semester. Yes, yeah, we are. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, Anas, I want to bring you into the conversation mm -hmm. here, too. So you, as I mentioned, are a member of the International Student Advisory Board. Yes, I am. And uh, I know that you're a journalism and have a couple of other majors in there, too, <laughs> journalism and psychology and... Yeah, and mass communication. And mass communications, mm -hmm. right. So... You are a senior now? Yes, I am. Yeah. So you've been here as an international student for mm -hmm. these four years, I suspect, and have seen changes on campus, uh, maybe seen some good things and some things that you think need to be addressed. What was it that um, spurred right. you to join the International Student Advisory Board? Yeah, for sure. So I just recently joined this semester, and uh, the reason why I wanted to join the board was because I wanted to um, help bridge the gap, I guess, between international and domestic students, because I am well aware that there is a gap. Um, I'm an international student, but I work really hard to be active on campus, but I'm also aware that some students are not like that, who are international students, and I recognize this and I want to help them, I guess, and hopefully through the board, um, this will be a possibility. And the board has been, um, we've been meeting, we meet every Friday, um, twice a month, and we come up with ways to help, I guess, bridge the gap, you know, like by starting conversations between domestic and international students, and we are coming up with potentially a public forum um, after Thanksgiving where we can start that conversation, because I think conversations are important to, to actually help. If you want to understand another person, it starts with conversations, I believe, and that's why I wanted to be part of the board, because I wanted to help facilitate and start those conversations. Mm -hmm. And are you feeling that a lot of the international students on campus with whom you've um, come into contact do, do want to have something like a public forum? Are you feeling mm -hmm. a, a need for outreach? Or Yeah, um, I do definitely feel like that, like that. I do feel they do want a public forum. I, I do recognize the fact that there are several barriers, though, like the language barrier is yeah. one that is really obvious. And it does intimidate some international students to reach out. But um, again, I think we have, we have to make these conversations work. We have to start it, even if it um, takes time. But yeah, I, I do believe students do want to interact. Um, what I've heard from my friends, and I have a lot of different friends, not just people from Malaysia, from <laughs> different countries like China and whatnot, and they tell me that 
like the biggest problem is that intimidation where they feel a bit, they don't feel confident enough, and I guess, to start a conversation. Um, and maybe if we can do that, we can help bridge the gap. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, have you by any chance had any um, work personally with the Conversation Center? Were, uh, were you aware? No, yeah. I've not personally. And I, this is actually the first time that I've heard about this. So yeah. see, that's like another, another thing that I think is an issue is that students don't really know about the resources available to them. Yeah. Because there are a lot of resources on campus. And I think um, the resources are helping students recognize, international students recognize those resources is one of the things that we've been discussing, the board has been discussing about. We want to set up like a social media platform where we can start a Q&A with international students and tell them if you have any problems, you can reach out and we can show you where to go. Because like um, the conversation center was something that I did not know until tonight. <laughs> and I think it's a wonderful, wonderful resource for sure um, to help bridge that gap and help both, you know, domestic and international students interact more, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things when you, when you say that, it, it, it reminds me of a lot of conversations that I've had where uh, the, both international students and domestic students see a lot of value in, mm-hmm. the, in these conversations, but they don't always know how to begin them. You know, right. I, I hear a lot of international students say, I, I, I'm just not sure if a domestic student wants to keep talking to me, or they're yeah. just kind of trying to be polite, you know, and I, I've, mm-hmm. I've talked with several, you know, conscientious young folks who, are, who say, I, I'm just realizing that I, I lived down the hall from international students for an entire year and never mm-hmm. managed to have a conversation with them. I think creating those forums goes a long way towards letting them have the conversations that they recognize are an incredibly valuable portion of their uh, transformational experience here mm-hmm. at Iowa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also true, you know, I'm an Iowa kid too, and many people in Iowa, just as international students, they're also coming into a new environment at a university, they're meeting people they didn't know before, whether other domestic students or international students, and so for many students it takes a couple of semesters at least to feel like you yeah. know who you are in this new place, so I think that that those barriers really exist for, for many people wherever they come from. And yeah. um, I know that you wrote a story for the Daily Iowa yes. last week, a post-election story. Can you share with us some of the concerns you've heard um, ex- expressed by international students and their welcome in the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. Um, so if none of you know, yeah, I also work at the Daily Iowa. I am the metro editor over there. So before I became an editor, I covered international students extensively because I'm passionate about it. <laughs> so last week, um, I, had, I, got, I received an email from the International Student um, Scholars and Services. It was regarding some students, um, international students specifically, who had concerns regarding the election, post-election. They started questioning whether it was legal for them to be here, which is really shocking for me because, I mean, they are legal here, that's where they're studying here. So um, I wanted to help, I guess, um, get that message out. And so I talked to Lee, um, and we talked to some international students to actually understand like what's going on. And hopefully with that, that article, we can help, um, I guess, bring, just in, let's, we could just um, ensure, we could just give some comfort, I guess, to international students to make sure that they know that they're welcome. And I think that was really important to get that article out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the concerns that they were bringing up were, was the fact that they felt they were, uh, they were here illegally or you know, with this change, their legal status, which is sad. It's a sad reality because, I mean, that's not the case, but they felt that way. Mm-hmm. There were a few students who came up to ISSS with those questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I'm really glad that you released that article last week because um, mm -hmm. I do hold conversations every week. And last week was kind of intense because yeah. um, another international student and I were talking about the elections. And you know, to me as a student, I mean, as a citizen of the US, I'm very vocal and I get to voice my opinions and I get the right to vote. These international students don't exactly have that ability. They don't have the same privileges that we as domestic students do. But whatever does happen impacts them just as much, if not more. So I think having these conversations has um, helped a lot of people realize that, yes, you're speaking for yourself too, but sometimes you have to realize that you have to use your privilege for other people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, you both have, uh, this conversation has involved. Um, some limited ability for the university, those of us who are communicators at the university, to spread the news about various resources that are available. I know I work in the communications area of international programs. We try in every way we possibly can mm -hmm. to get the word out about things. And I know that all the other departments on campus do as well. There are resources here. If you have concerns, you know. And um, sometimes... We feel like you know the tools we're using aren't reaching the students. They may be reaching lots of other people, but um, I'm not sure students use standard email anymore the way they used to. I, I think that you know uh, students today could help inform the university. I'm really happy that you guys are working in this area and thinking about these things because mm -hmm. I think um, tools are changing every day and communications patterns change every day. And we know that we have different audiences we speak to. And um, do you have ideas about how we could better communicate what resources there are on campus, whom we should be speaking to, and, and sort of getting on board with that messaging. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to go? Or um, <laughs> I can go. I do think that it's one of the things that we're proud of in the Conversation Center being uh, what we call a peer-up program yeah. that we have undergraduates that are not only the originators and help administer the program, but also are holding the conversations. And I think having people who are literally embedded within mm -hmm. the student body is a really important part mm -hmm. of that kind of outreach. I mean, we're largely a word-of-mouth program. So. Yeah. I, I believe that, it, well, my personal opinion, I think that students need to push their friends, pull them out and say, hey, do you want to do this? Do you know that this resor this, these resources are available? Mm -hmm. Because they are. Um, that's what I'm seeing, at least, for my community. I feel like... Like you said, um, students don't read their emails, and that's disappointing, I guess, because <laughs> that's one of the ways where they get messages out, and students don't do that. So I guess besides having students add, you know, bring more awareness to other students who are not as involved, I think we could also utilize, it's probably, probably very naive of me to say social media, but it's just where they all are yeah. nowadays. So maybe getting the message out through social media as well as um, having students um, raise awareness, I guess. Mm -hmm. Those are my two personal, I think, the mm -hmm. two ways that we can increase student involvement. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And I think um, a big portion of that comes with developing personal relationships yeah. and friendships with your professors. Yeah. Um, like I said, I approached Dr. Cameron, but that was to get the conversation center started, but that was only because I connected with her when she was teaching me, and I had no problem <laughs> going to her for my questions about rhetoric. And even mm -hmm. just having random conversations was amazing. And building those relationships with my teachers has made me realize what they're passionate about and what matters to them. And it's just made me more excited about 
anything else on campus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So having that is really important, I would say. Yeah. I think that there's been, uh, I've seen a lot of engagement by faculty on campus who are, you know, trying to make sure that they are reaching out to students who may come from a very different learning background than the one uh, that a domestic U.S. student may have uh, come from. There's this new pronunciation tool, which is a very interesting innovation here at Iowa, which many people know about, where a student or a faculty person or any staff person can record the the preferred pronunciation for their own name, mm -hmm. and, and that exists in a database. Uh, it seems like a simple thing, maybe unnecessary, until you reach that point where, when we were discussing how I should pronounce your name for this program, you know, I wanted to get it right. And it's just kind of, it's a nice courtesy to yeah. anyone yeah. Uh, to, to know how to say their name. So um, any big issues that you can think of right now that the Student Advisory Board uh, wants to work on or would like to speak with administration about? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we recognize, well, especially post-election, is the racism and xenophobic remarks that have been going on. Um, and I think, I mean, in the past, there has been a few cases at the University of Iowa. Like uh, last fall, I think, there was... Um, racism through Yik Yak, the yes. social media app. And so we do recognize that these things are ongoing. I don't think there's ever a time where racism just suddenly goes away. And um, I think the board, what we're trying to do is through that forum that I was telling you mm -hmm. earlier on, maybe we could start those conversations. Because, um, and I guess if we were to tell faculty or administration administrators what is the one problem, is probably the fact that there is subtle racism going on around and maybe we need to deal with that, like head on, having more conversations. And we're also trying to do more events, like a role play event, to have domestic students and international students be oh, in yeah. each other's shoes. Yeah. That yeah. way they can understand like, the situations that right. each other you know, has been experiencing. Yeah. yeah. Anything you two would like to add in, in terms of the support for a program like the uh, Conversation Partners or Conversation Center? Um, your undergraduate students are volunteers, really, managing this. The IC leaders are um, volunteering for this. Um, I imagine it's a fairly big time commitment, right? Yes, but yeah. it's also worth it. But it's but also it's... worth it, yeah. Is there anything you can think of? Um, you've already mentioned the importance of the faculty-student relationship and that uh, building of trust so that you could speak to the faculty member, but is there anything else you can think of, or can you think of something within the Department of Rhetoric or, or other parts of the university where, where um, there could be mm, something that would similarly engage students um, so that that you know, peer-up process uh, could become really core to all we do here. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways in which we can, we can leverage the fact that we have such close relationships with our students mm -hmm. to make sure that they use the creativity that they have to engage their education. I mean, I think a lot of what, a lot of what made sense to me after, after I went through college myself was thinking about how I, I had this sort of moment where I felt like I looked back and hadn't learned a thing at all, you know? Um, and it was in realizing that the, thing, the things that I learned didn't come apparent to me until I finally started to think about how my education was knit together from all of these different courses and the ways in which my education was something that was unique to me, was mm -hmm. something that arose out of uh, not just those courses but the understandings of the world that came from them. And I think as a faculty, we can do a lot to make sure that our students have opportunities to engage um, 
interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarily um, across mm -hmm. courses and between curriculums to make sure that they can have the kind of experience mm -hmm. to, um, to understand and be able to speak to the value of their own education. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to overcoming certain barriers and those kind of issues, I think one of the biggest problems that I would state that I find on campus is that there are some people who just aren't interested in looking into other people's cultures or engaging in different um, diversity programs. And I think what we need to do is focus on how to reach out to those kind of people and how to make them realize that this is relevant because we are in a global society and there is no way around diversity and there's no way around um, acknowledging other cultures but to gauge that interest, mm -hmm. I think there's something that needs to be done about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you have any concluding thoughts. Uh, concluding thoughts. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. I guess I, I bet everyone who came here today is interested in globalization or international, anything related to international students or whatnot because you're here today. I guess we could all just start by, you know, it starts with the self, you know, your own self which is to reach out to other people. Um, when I first came here, I was intimidated too. <laughs> I mean, this is like a new country, a new place for me, but I wanted to meet new people and gain different experiences, and that's how I got so involved with the paper and also the board, because I wanted to be involved. And I, and I think it's like a two-way thing, like we've all said. Um, if we want to change things, we have to be able to start with ourselves, and maybe we could just start by interacting more with people who are different than us, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my takeaway. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that's a, a good way for us to wrap up this segment. And I, I thank you all so much for being here this afternoon. Um, we, yeah. <laughs> um, Akshaya Warrior is here, and Anis Shakira Mod Muslimin is at the far end. And this is Ben Hasman. And uh, I thank you all for joining us this afternoon for this interesting conversation. I'm really grateful to have this input from student body and from mm -hmm. faculty as well. Um, so as you know, this is World Canvas. Uh, I'm Joan Kerr, and this program program will be available on YouTube and iTunes and the International Programs website very shortly. Thank you so much for coming to be here with us live this afternoon. And if you're watching this on uh, television or listening on iTunes, thank you for your time, and we hope to see you next time. Good night. <laughs>